0: Disclaimer. The views and opinions of this program are not necessarily those of the New American Magazine. They're submitted for your entertainment and consideration. You should consult your doctor before considering expending too much strenuous energy on these controversial subjects. If you don't have medical authorization, consider this invitation as your permission slip for independent thought. This is Under the Iceberg hosted by Daniel Natal, co-hosted by the former compliance trainer at the Department of Energy, Jimmy Silcox, as well as publisher for the New American magazine, Dennis Barron. In addition, the panel is pleased to include the mysterious Sid, a man broadcasting from his undisclosed underground command center and reaching us through two VPNs for added security. Tonight's broadcast is dedicated to the conspiracy known as Majestic 12. Chapter 1. The Premise. On April 4th, 1950... President Harry S. Truman said, quote, I can assure you that given they exist, these flying saucers are made by no power on this earth. In the post-World War II period, Truman was in the midst of reshaping the world and instituting the Cold War era. As a result, he authorized the creation of the CIA in September of 1947. The CIA, it might be said in a digression, would later found its own unit to look into the possibility of extraterrestrial life. Today, this unit is known as the Collins Elite, No one denies its existence, just as no one now denies the existence of the Air Force's Project Blue Book Initiative in 1952 to study the same phenomenon. In 1947, just as Truman was creating the CIA, he was also dealing with the inchoate formation of what we today know as the military-industrial complex, spearheaded by former head of MIT and founder of Raytheon, Vannevar Bush. Bush was in academia and pushed for America to act more like Germany after World War I and to have a permanent nexus between the military and universities to work on defense technology and weapon systems, even when the country was ostensibly in peacetime. Just as Truman was creating the foundations for the CIA and the military-industrial complex in 1947, certain documents arose, claiming that in the same year, Truman authorized the formation of a policy study group, headed by the same Vannevar Bush, to look into the question of UFOs after the Roswell crash in New Mexico in July of that same year. Possible evidence of this proto-project Blue Book program came in December of 1984, when a documentary film producer named Jamie Shandera received a strange package in the mail. There was no return address. It contained a roll of 35mm film. Shandera took the roll of film to a friend of his, author Bill Moore. Together, they examined the contents. The film contained images of eight purported pages of a government briefing paper. Cumulatively, these pages came to be known as a document called Majestic 12, or MJ-12 for short. The document was allegedly a memo written in 1952. According to the document, Majestic 12 was a 12-man advisory board that shared information within the National Security Council, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the White House Intelligence Unit, the CIA, the NSA, and the Defense Intelligence Agency. And their job was to recover and study alien technology with a view to reverse engineering it and obtaining a military advantage for the United States. While today the CIA is desperately trying to mainstream interest in UFOs and promoting clips of unidentified flying objects on Tucker Carlson or having operatives like Luis Elizondo or John Podesta making the rounds of other media outlets, back in the 1980s, they were bent on secrecy related to the subject and engaged debunkers to try and repudiate the leaks of whistleblowers. Because conventionalists were deployed back in the 80s, much doubt has been cast on the MJ-12 documents found by Jamie Shandera and Bill Moore. So were the documents fake? Or were they actually authentic, as people like Bob Wood and Linda Moulton Howe contend? Well, that's the basic premise. Was that okay, Jenny?
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know why it would be staged by Bill Moore, but I know why it would be staged by the CIA. You know, And, and the documents, by the way, I don't know if you've seen some of the screenshots of the documents, mm-hmm. but to me, they bear a lot of the hallmarks of original documents that really truly are uh, actual documents.
0: Well, I noticed in researching the documents that some of the self-proclaimed skeptics were really catty about it. For instance, they'll point out that the Harry S. Truman signature was taken from another document and allegedly Xeroxed onto the Majestic 12 papers, but what they don't tell people is that Truman signed multiple documents at a single stroke with a device called a pentagraph that could do five documents at once. So the claim of the signature being on another document is explained if you actually know the protocols of the time. Likewise, they'll mislead people about other aspects of the document, like this would-be debunker. Here's a clip. Where's the original film from this? This would be basic data. Is that available?
2: It's sort of like my complaint about the Bigfoot film. We don't get the negatives.
0: Wait, did he just imply that proponents of the document didn't study the original negatives? The problem with that is that Bob Wood directly contradicts that. Listen to him talk about it here as he shows slides at a conference. Here's a copy of a letter signed by James Black, who's a forensic analyst that uh, I've hired to evaluate question documents when they've been typed. And this was the uh, original photograph of the one that was received by Bill Moore back in 1984. And Bill has lent me the original negatives, and I've used those to make high quality color uh, prints. And so these prints then were evaluated by James Black. Uh,
2: how about you, Dennis? Uh, what was your, uh, your initial take on Majestic 12? Well, I've been aware of these uh, purported documents called Majestic 12 and the group of Majestic 12, uh, you know, leaders and Van Ever Bush, uh, his uh, purported head of this thing since really, uh, you know, decades. I've, I've, I've paid attention to this and, you know, kept an eye on it because it seemed like a strange occurrence that these things would just suddenly appear as they uh, purportedly suddenly appeared for uh, the two guys in the mid eighties who got them. So uh, I've been aware of these for a long time and uh they've always struck me as having one key problem, which doesn't have anything to do with what they look like or whether they look official or not, uh, but the one key problem that, I, that they seem to have from my point of view is that they seem to grant the wishes, the most fervent desires of the UFO community community by uh, basically essentially proving that everything that they thought they knew, they did in fact know and was correct. Uh, and that leads me always to be suspicious of the too good to be true phenomena. So my, my, my take on this is there's probably more to the story. And I don't know what the more to the story is. I don't know that anybody knows what the more to the story is, but I, I think that on the face of things, they don't convince me that they're they're legitimate in, in, in the sense of being actually, you know briefing documents provided to the president.
0: Well, it's interesting that you refer to the more to the story regarding Bill Moore, the guy who found <laughs> the documents. The skeptic community tries to put it out on Moore
2: uh, and Shandera,
0: you know, saying, "Oh, well, they—it's clearly fake because they—they they made it." Whereas Ginny and, and myself included, it probably lean more toward. Uh, they didn't create it, but the CIA did, and legitimately did. You know, so it, it looks official because it's a CIA. Like I, I remember listening to a podcast, um, and there was an FBI agent named uh, John D'Souza, and he said that um, they they could no longer censor things in the way that they used to in the old days. So now their technique was not to censor, but to create fake documents, to create fake incidents that they could debunk and uh, make it look like, you know, I, I use the example, you know, during uh, the Jeffrey Epstein thing, you know, as, as people were looking at legitimate celebrities who really were on the flight logs, and they were kind of like scrutinizing them, then all of a sudden, you'd, you'd see this fake story of, oh, Ron Howard is a secret, you know, Hollywood pedophile. Um, and, you know, then they would come in and, and debunk the Ron Howard one, hoping that the public would think, oh, well, that one was debunked, then the others must be fake, too, you know, and that's their new technique. And, and I kind of lean toward that explanation, um, that, that, you know, more, Moore and Shandera really weren't, you know, really probably whether they were, whether they were taken in um, I, I, or not, you know, whether the documents are, are, are legitimate or not, I kind of lean in that direction that it was probably the CIA, like disseminating the, the information. Do you have a, an opinion on that, Sid?
3: Um, I, well, I tend to agree, but I believe they're creating more and more fake rabbit holes. Like people tend to believe, like people really don't trust the mainstream. So they go find, try and find an alternate source of information, right? so someone who believes in ufos may stumble upon these and be like hey these are real they look real all the while they're not they're not really real they're just well just and I, I would like
1: to throw something on the pile here and that is oh. i hear somebody's cat meowing
3: <laughs> oh yeah my bad Sorry. no that's uh awesome. <laughs>
1: anyway uh, i would like to make the point that linda Moulton Howe was drawn astray by Richard Doty, who was an Air Force-CIA-appointed disinformation specialist. And she was one of the first people that ever broke these documents. And having Doty's name associated with anything immediately lends a real stink to it, because the guy is an acknowledged liar.
0: Well, I mean, the, the exactly. Just like uh, Louis Elizondo, who's famous. You know, all yeah. these people who are allegedly doing disclosure and I'm a former CIA agent and I'm here to tell you the truth that those are the last people who have any <laughs> credibility. And yet those are the ones who are getting the, the airtime. Those are the ones are on CNN or MSNBC or Tucker Carlson, you know, going around with their, you know, kind of John Podesta funded, you know, UFO disclosure projects. Um, Dennis, what, what's your, your take on that?
2: Well, you know, I, I want to go back a little bit to... Um, to Moore and Shandera, I think Bill Moore may have admitted that he was engaged in some elements of disinformation at one point, not necessarily with the Majestic 12 documents, but that he may have engaged in some, or at least been aware of some elements of disinformation. So I think that lends credence to the idea that the Majestic 12 documents are part of a disinformation campaign, uh, you know, sewn out there for uh, the UFO community to, you know, really be led down one of the rabbit holes that Sid mentioned. and I think that actually, you know, plays into a big societal problem that we increasingly have, you know, since World War Two, especially, um, and, and it was necessary in World War Two, there were there was a heck of a lot of secrecy around technological development, and that continued post World War II. interestingly enough, Vannevar Ever Bush. Uh, had written a memo to Harry Truman, where he said, you know, everything should be done in the open scientifically, we shouldn't do these secret projects for research any longer, we should, we should turn the light of day on all of this and have it open that would be actually more effective. That didn't happen. And Bush was sort of put out to pasture in a lot of ways from his leadership role and government leadership of Research technology, Uh, so you know we kept the, and if anything, enhanced the secrecy around uh, technological development. uh, You know, develop things like DARPA and whatnot, and 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 the black programs and uh, the secret programs that Lockheed Martin engaged in to develop aircraft, and you know, unknown numbers of others. And you know, this and other secret have secrets that people are well aware that there are secrets, and increasingly so nowadays lead people to believe that uh, everything they're, you know, everything they're hearing is a lie. And and Sid brought that up too. I think that's an increasing problem. And I think we look at uh, things like the Majestic 12 is just part of that continuum. Um, You know, almost cue the X-Files music. People want to believe. I I, I want to believe that it's out there. Something's out there, but it's probably not what we think it is.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, there, there was a Jason Giorgiani was making that point uh, regarding dis- the disclosure that they're attempting to do now. And he talks about, you know, the, the four different categories that were kind of elaborated during Project Blue Book from 1952, um, if, close encounters of the first kind of the second kind of the third kind of the fourth kind. And so close encounters of the first kind are just when you see something on radar. Right, where you see, or a a jet, you know, fighter sees something in the distance, and and they're like, oh, this looks like a UFO. That's a close encounter of the first kind. Close encounter of the second kind is when you actually kind of come into contact with, you know, like a purported vehicle in a clearing in, in England, as an example, as you know, happened in, in the 80s, I believe. Um, and uh, Close Encounter of the Third Kind is when you interact with with the beings. And Fourth Kind is like abduction and stuff. And he said that they're only disclosing First Encounters of the First Kind, which is the most shallow Kind of garbage tier, you know, thing, you know. So as they're, as they're saying, oh, we're making a clean breast of it, you know. Um, it it really doesn't, you know, kind of bear scrutiny because you know they're they really not. And you know, over top of that, just getting back to Project Blue Book, one of the things that to me, you know, kind of, you know, on the balance sheet, pro versus con, you know, um, you know, are these fake documents? Are they real documents? One of the things that strikes me is. There really was Project Blue Book in 1952. So when people were like, oh, it's so far fetched. Why would they have you know like a, a policy advisory group on this?" They would never do that. Yet they admit that they did in 1952, just a couple of years later. So there clearly was like a program in place to kind of monitor these things. And Nick Redfern talks about that in his book Final Events. After 1947, uh, the the equivalent of the FAA at the time, they were freaked out by all these you know things in the air that they were seeing for the first time. Um, but you have to remember too, radar was new as well. <laughs> So, you know, every, every, the technologies were new. So, oh, God, did you want to jump in, Dennis?
2: Uh, no, I think your analysis there is quite right. And, you know, the technology was new uh, with radar and, and many other things. Of course, it's advanced considerably now. Um, and that's a key point I want to make. The technology continues to advance and that advancement accelerates and it accelerates in secret. Uh, so while we may be familiar with the technology that we see all around us and nothing that we see around us generally takes us by surprise in our everyday life, we rarely have a firm understanding of what's taking place in even regular private industrial labs, much not, you know, and much, much less so what's taking place in secret government labs. And I'm struck by having read something that, uh, uh, one of our one of our leading scientists today said in a recent book that she'd written and this is Jennifer Doudna who is one of the two key originators of uh, well discoverers I guess you'd say of the CRISPR gene editing technology she, she wrote a book about that effort she made to discover that and in that book she mentioned that she goes to work every day and she goes to work in this laboratory and she talks with all the scientists and she takes for granted the extremely sophisticated research that she's doing which you know, in in many ways is quite mind blowing. And then she goes back home and interacts with her neighbors and her family's friends, and they have no idea of what's taking place in the laboratory. And there's this vast chasm of a disconnect between regular American life uh, regular life in general, and what's taking place in the you know sophisticated laboratories that she inhabits during her workaday world, and when you when you think about that, that's taking place not in secret, that's taking place in an open laboratory, and the and the research is published openly in peer review. What is taking place even beyond that uh, in the more speculative and secret laboratories that the government operates? Uh, I, I think that. The disconnect is even greater between what the average person sees and what's taking place there. And I think if you get a glimpse of the technology that's coming out of there, that could lead some people to think, my gosh, I've just seen something otherworldly. That may not be otherworldly at all. It may literally be technology that is just beyond their understanding of what's actually taking place for real in our laboratories. Like uh, Arthur C. Clarke, his comment, his famous comment about
0: um, any sufficiently advanced science would be indistinguishable from magic you know, yeah. kind of reminds you. I know, now, speak, speaking of
1: magic, I, I do have something to enter into that part of the discussion. And that is that at Holloman Air Force Base, uh, you have to keep in mind that I did work at Sandia Labs and Kirtland Air Force Base. And some of my uh, consulting people for my course designs were from uh, Los Alamos. And uh, I got to know, I was on loan to the Air Force for two years at Kirtland. And I got to know some people that were Uh, Retired, but acting as consultants who had been at Holloman during certain events that happened in the 50s and uh, in the 50s, in the early 50s, as a result of some, quote unquote, reverse engineering, um, there was a lot of advanced research being done on longitudinal radar, which had apparently those developments where, well, actually, uh, the initial research was done started in 1946 and as a result, uh, makes me think that an experiment in, in uh, using a different type of microwave radar at Holloman might have been responsible for the quote-unquote Roswell crash.
0: Chapter 2. Speculation.
2: Yeah, and that's interesting that you bring that up because uh, there's a, there was a lot of secrecy in the 1940s and early 1950s around radar technology. In the 1940s, some of the radar technology that came to the U.S. came from the U.K. and the U.K. didn't have the wherewithal to continue the testing and development of it, even though they originated it. Uh, So it was delivered over here to the U.S. where our scientists worked on it. And this, of course, was extremely super secret. So uh, that would be a key area where some disinformation campaigns would be helpful in trying to keep that keep that secret and keep maybe some of the people who from the other side would would like to know what's going on, going down some of the rabbit holes. So I think that's probably the genesis of some of the disinformation campaigns right there. Um, Yeah,
1: I need to keep things secret. And and the other thing is that uh, I have papers from dating back to the early 40s from Russia that were talking about the longitudinal aspect of uh, microwave radar. Um, Well, well, And so... (laughs) There was competition happening with Russia at
2: the time. Absolutely, there was. You're right.
0: Well, you, uh, you Dennis made a point about you know the radar technology, and uh, that gets us to the the Rad Lab, which it was called you know this was the secret radar you know kind of uh, experimentation lab at MIT, which brings us back to Vannevar Bush, uh, who you know was at one point the, the head of MIT. And one of the interesting things that I kind of stumbled across was um, I don't know if you guys are, are familiar with uh, Cliff High. I know Jenny is. Um, but, yeah. but Cliff Eyes is, is a, a very intelligent and engaging kind of, you know, guy. And he's on the Internet. He's got like, you know, YouTube channels and stuff. Very, very intelligent gentleman. But one of the things that he said that I personally kind of, you know, disagree with was he he was talking about, you know, reverse engineered alien technology, you know, as a result of Roswell or all these, you know, the other narratives. And he said, well, that's what, you know, we, we got digital technology from the aliens. Everything was analog before then. Like if you go to Vannevar Bush's Not true. Uh, well, at exa- all. exactly. That's what I was about to say. So so if you go to Venever Bush's electronic brain, it was all spinning discs and iron rods, and it was very similar to the Babbage's adding machine from the 1820s. Um, so you know, even in the 1940s, everything was still mechanical. But here's the thing. If you read Dark Hero of the Information Age, uh, a history of Norbert Wiener. Norbert Wiener was the uh, kind of inventor of cybernetics. And um, so Norbert Wiener was at MIT, and Norbert had the idea he was looking at the friction of these rods. And the rods and disks were, because of the heat involved of spinning and stuff, they would always have to be reset. There were always errors. It was time-consuming. And then he looked at television, Uh, Nipkopf, the the German inventor who had invented television, and he was using light beams. He was bouncing light beams back and forth. So Norbert said to to Vanver Bush and the people at MIT he was like instead of using you know analog instead of using metal you know can't we use light beams as as the the mechanism and there there was the genesis of digital right right there so it wasn't from aliens it wasn't <laughs> wasn't from you know <laughs> re- reverse engineered technology there was a very clear you know kind of genesis of it a genealogy of that technology that cliff I just you know obviously wasn't aware of but that alien narrative is a good cover for you know stuff that you want to keep secret and kind of obscure Obscure. sid did you have any take on any of this
3: no i'm just love listening to this man <laughs> you're, you're playing well,
1: I'd, I'd like to make a point about the digital aspect of things since Go that's uh, my degree <laughs> yeah well basically if you think about the old german music boxes where they had little metal cylinders with teeth sticking out on them that would engage certain times uh that had different tones Mm-hmm. And that you would wind it up and the little cylinder would turn around and play the music by these individual planes hitting certain of the little tuning forks that were inside there. And, and that's basically the genesis of digital technology. There's no in-between. It's off or on. As that cylinder goes around, it toggles one of the given times. And, and also right around the same time, Um, The rug, uh, the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, um, they started revolutionizing the machines that wove rugs. Uh, Eventually, it led to a punch card system where they could toggle certain shuttles to come in and out of the rug weaving weaving machine. They're beginning to mechanize everything. And they could actually make various different shuttles with different colors of yarn come in and do a certain pattern of stitching. Yeah. So that was the way early beginning yeah. of digital concepts.
0: Yeah, it was in uh, the Middle Ages, I believe. Um, they used like water wheels and stuff like that, and then all of a sudden, some it occurred to somebody that they could use the kind of spinning of this wheel to you know engage little little things, and and it was originally in in, in places like you know lumber mills and stuff like that, and then somebody took that technology. And, and you're right, like made it in like music boxes, made it into player pianos, and it kind of, you know, evolved in its own thing. And then and then it went to France where they used it for looms for the first time. And then Babbage, the guy who created the first what we think of as, as analog computer in the 1820s, um, Babbage thought he had a brainstorm and he was like, hey, why, why can't I use that to do mathematical calculations? And so that was right. the, the genesis. And it's odd that, that it didn't really advance that much further from the the, that mechanistic kind of music box uh technology even into the 40s it was very similar that that original electronic brain you know uh prior to univac and stuff like that you know it was it was very similar to babbage's adding machine very impressive but it was it was just a a complicated music box really you know up until the 40s until they had that jump and and some people even say that the um the first modern computer, uh, you know, prior to Univac, it was actually the Germans, the Nazis, actually actually had like the first what we would consider modern computer.
1: Oh, you know? the Enigma machine.
0: No, no, it wasn't the Enigma. It was it was actually a a computer, kind of like it. It looked very similar to the Univac. You know, it was this big, huge, kind of warehouse sized computer with tapes and, and stuff like you know, kind of like in the 1960s when they would have the boop, beep, bop, you know, with the punch cards and <laughs> stuff. Like that.
1: Yeah. Well I I hate to confess this but when I worked at Bell Labs in 1980 uh we that we were still using uh, a mainframe computer and we had to do punch cards.
0: Well by the year 2000 we'll be solving crimes sure. with that, you know. Like, computer, <laughs> who, who committed this crime and then you stick the punch card in. I've I've seen There's there nothing
1: TV. like tripping on the rug and losing your tray of punch cards. <laughs>
2: That would be a (laughs) catastrophe. Really Um, phenomenal. Can I add something real quick? Good. Of course.
3: Yeah. It's just always surprised me how, how rapid technology developed within the last century. Like, it seemed unnatural, the growth of it, you know? So, a lot of people feel that. So, when they probably go searching for the answer, they go down those rabbit holes, the fake ones we're talking about. They try and find the answer for it because it just doesn't feel natural. (laughs)
0: Well, one of the things that you mentioned, you mentioned the term rabbit hole, and that's actually interesting because um, when they were first studying radar, and they were able to detect planes, you know, f- from a long way off. And they, they wanted to obscure this fact. So when they were saying, how are the pilots aware of these, you know, German planes far off, they lied. And they said that we were giving them beta carotene. We we're giving them carrots. <laughs> we're giving them super <laughs> strong eyesight. It, this is literally what happened. You can look look this up on any search engine.
1: That's great. And so,
0: <laughs> so rabbit hole really does go with, you know, the, the, the carrot narrative. And so you, you've seen like a lot of this. I mean, like, like... Uh, Werner von Braun you know talked about that being at meetings uh with uh you know you know the Pentagon Joint Chiefs of Staff and stuff where they were talking they were very impressed by orson welles's war of the world's 1938 broadcast and uh you know where people were panicking and they thought that Martians had landed in new jersey and um and so they, they, they were openly talking about using that as a, as a kind of like a, a, a carrot explanation for things to obscure information. You, you just say, oh, aliens, and people were just so taken up by that. You know, so, so you know that's not to say that, you know, I, I don't know. I, I have no idea whether we are in contact with things. There There's actually contravening evidence on the other side of the balance sheet, you know, like Nick Redfern, that great book that I, I cited earlier, uh, Final Events, where he produces documents that actually relate to this. Period. So I'm going to pontificate here for just a second, and I apologize. I'm going to ramble for a second. But in 1947, the same year that Majestic 12 documents came out, there was a, a gentleman um, named uh, Jack Parsons, and Jack Parsons, the world knows as the Satan,
1: uh, Satanist.
0: Well, basically, right. right? So he he, he did uh, Jet Propulsions Laboratory, and. Um, so he was a brilliant young rocketeer, mostly self-taught. I mean, he was just a, a genius-level person. But his side hobby was alchemy, and so he was he was trying to replicate the uh, the spells of Aleister Crowley, the British occultist from you know the nineteen tens. And uh, so he, uh, purportedly, he did something called the Babylon working. And, uh, that was the name of the ritual. And he was going to usher in, you know, the, the, you know, basically he was going to try to open up a portal between our dimension and this other dimension that Crowley claimed to have opened up, um, and closed subsequently. But Crowley was replicating the work of Dr. Dr. John Dee from the, the 1500s. Uh, you know, Merlin is thought to, to possibly be, be based on, uh, John Dee. And, um, So these are very old kind of alchemical, you know, preoccupations. And so in 1947, according to Nick Redfern's book, um, weird stuff started to happen after Jack Parsons Allegedly opens this portal. All of a sudden, people start seeing all these things in the sky. Um, that the CIA later, the Collins Elite, a unit of the within the CIA, they um, approached a priest at Mufon and they asked him. They said, "These these so called aliens, um, we think they're demonic. You know, what what do you think about that?" And so the, the priest at Mufon, he, he just happened to be a priest. You know, has nothing to do with his uh, his work for the UFO organization. Um, so, but they approached him because of his dual skill set, and they said that they were very. Concerned that what they had hitherto been thinking of as extraterrestrials might actually be, you know, interdimensionals. They, they might actually be demonic in origin, and they were they were, you know, concerned about that. And so they actually started to replicate Jack Parsons' um, experiments as, as alchemical spells. The Babylon working at Wright Patterson Air Force Base, according to documents that that Nick Redfern, uh, you know, produced. So I, I find that very interesting.
1: What a waste of money. <laughs>
0: Well, they they had to. <laughs> yep. the, they found out that he was an alchemist because um, this was around the same. Forty seven is an amazing year. So many things are happening in forty seven. Um, they, they, Israel is about to be founded. So Israel is officially founded in nineteen forty eight. And so the CIA or you know the OSS at the time, um, they went in because they had to do a background check because they thought that he was selling rocket technology to the Israelis. Um, and so you know in in the course of doing a background check on him, they start realizing that he's kind of in these occult. You know places, uh, and and he was actually friends with L. Ron Hubbard of all people. L. Ron oh, Hubbard steals his, yeah. his wife. Um, so yeah, so a lot of these these things, these this nexus in you know New Mexico in 1947. It's also the same year Jack Parsons actually knew the guy who coined the term flying saucers. Uh, Ke- Ke- is it Kenneth Arnold? Um, yeah. In 1947, yeah, he was a pilot, and he sees so. And and Jack Parsons's lab was was by. Um, Roswell. It was it, it, he, had, he had a lab in Roswell. And uh, so you see all these, these, these kind of, you know, nodes, you know, these, these threads coming together, you know, um, this, this convergence in 1947, there's just, you know, it's phenomenal.
2: Here's another thing that happened in 1947, or was continuing in 1947. But by 1947, nearly 2000 German technicians and scientists had been swept up uh, by Operation Paperclip, which was the post World War Two effort to uh, move German technology to the West, to the United States. Uh, And I think that, uh, you know, I want to lead that back to something that Sid was talking about, too, which is the speed of of the maybe unnaturally seeming speed of advancement of technology. Why was the U.S. so interested in, you know, capturing and bringing to the U.S. all these German scientists? Well, what's really uh, lost, I think, to the American-centric view of history is that uh, at the beginning of the 20th century, and the end of the 19th century, the United States was not the world's scientific superpower. It was Germany. And right up until World War II, it was Germany. And uh, Germany was far more advanced than uh, the, in terms of especially chemical research and chemical technology than uh, the United States was. And that technology, that research really underpinned a lot of the advancement that we don't see any longer because it's not really part of our direct history. But that chemical research, that chemical technology uh, led to, you know, vast discoveries in, in things like quantum mechanics and uh, led to the, the, the theory of relativity the work that Einstein did was related to some of these things. Uh, so
1: fortunate that Einstein hated electricity.
2: Yeah. So only wanted know, to
1: work with gravitation, which is a big fallacy.
2: Right. You know, so we really, we really have, we are missing, I think, a kind of bit of perspective on our technological development that only makes it seem like uh, it's been an unnatural acceleration of technology, when I'm, when in fact, I don't think it's been an unnatural development of technology. I don't think we need to look to an extraterrestrial influence to bring, uh, you know, the technology that we have to the table today, because I think we have a long history going back to the late 19th century German chemistry uh, research right up through the present day. And there, there's there's a defensible argument there, I think, for a you know, native human development of technology that's in keeping with what we've seen.
1: I would agree with you. And the unfortunate thing is that at some point a splitting happened that seems to me was due to finances and that the, there, at some point there was a breakaway where uh, a lot of the research and forward movement was co-opted and uh, there's always the grant-driven system that we have ruling our science. And, uh, you know, the the interest goes where the money flows. And, and I think at a certain point, money started flowing secretly into the development, a lot of uh, very advanced developments that the, the uh, you know, the American public has never seen.
2: That actually goes right back to what uh, Vannevar Bush was arguing in his, uh, his uh, argumentation to President Truman, that we don't We would be better served not to keep the secret uh, research research programs, keep them secret. We'd better to have them in the open uh, than we would be to keep them secret as we did during the war. And, uh, you know, we didn't follow his advice. Well, uh, in the early 40s, there was something called the Macy Conferences, and these were highly successful
0: conferences where they had like a cross-section of people from, you know, academia, different scientists from different, you know, whether they were sociologists, whether they were mathematicians, whether they were in biology, and they came together. And this is uh, where cybernetics really kind of, you know, took off and, at these Macy's conferences. And... um and because at the time, there wasn't all the secrecy. There wasn't all this kind of uh, intellectual property concerns. And um, and because of that, you know, you had these incredible advances because people could share information like that. But then World War II happens. And when World War II happens, everything goes underground. Everything gets secret. And this, this we, we, look, for instance, we had more patents being published in the 19th century than in the 21st century, you know, because right. a lot of this technology is now secret. And if you issue a patent, people can look into what you're doing. So, so it looks like on paper, like we're less productive, we're, we're making less strides, you know, because that's what they, you know, it's, it's all hidden. And so Tim Wu has this book called the master switch. And he talks about that, um, kind of the, the progression of technology. And in the early 20th century, the 19th century, 18th century, science was the purview of the inventor, the tinkerer in his backyard shed. And you have people like Nikola Tesla or Thomas Edison or, or Nipkoff, you know, you know, creating the television set, and you know all these all these great advances. But then, after World War II, as a result of Vannevar Bush and the military industrial complex, all of a sudden it goes from the backyard shed to the research lab, and it's extremely expensive. And instead of one guy, you know, doing this great invention that'll have a huge economic payoff, now you have thousands of, of scientists engaged in doing some kind of esoteric thing. You know, that, that doesn't really produce any money. You know, like they get so specialized that it's like, okay, we had ten thousand scientists, and they invented a new screw for a satellite. Well, that's not going to make as much money as the motion picture camera, or as the light bulb, or, the, or you know, or the television. Well, you have
1: to keep in mind too that compartmentalization was uh, invented, I think, in World War II. You know, the need for ten thousand scientists. You know, one's working on the screw, the other's working on the drive uh, train, and the other's working on something else, and nobody knows how their work interlocks. In the total design of something. And so you have to ask who in the world was coordinating and knowing what the final end goal might be.
0: Yeah. So it's blocking synergy,
1: right? Right. That Um, and it's also blocking a free flow of knowledge that might spin off into further developments.
0: What are you going to say, Sid?
3: Um, I was going to add on to a note to what you and Dennis said earlier, but um, there was a Nazi group during World War II. Let me—I can't pronounce it for life me, but it's A H N E N E R B E. And so Anna Ananerba. Yeah, yeah, thank you, Ananerba. So this group was mainly tasked by Himmler, who was a freaking big occultist. Yes, yeah,
1: and so, was it under Hans Kammler?
3: Um, let me double check. But I believe it was under Himmler, maybe Kammler. Um, Himmler, yeah. Okay. But um, basically, it was a German think tank, and some of the members were taken by Operation Paperclip and later worked on a lot of stuff we see today. Um, some of the stuff, uh, like
1: Oberg, was Hans Oberg.
3: Um, no, the one of, um, I think, but um, it was a. Uh, hold on.
1: I think a lot of them went to the Manhattan Project.
3: Jenny is going to yeah. put a cigarette out on Sid. Was it Hans <laughs> Ohberg? Um, a notable member was Kurt Klunder, who was basically his experiments led to one well, of those experiments it's called the CIA ran in the colleges in the early sixties, basically oh. trying to find a true here. But his experiments on the Jews in the forties led to him being recruited by the CIA later in life, right? Getting picked up for uh, Operation Paperclip. So, what I'm trying to say is. All these scientists who were basically designated by Himmler, who were part of the signal organization, and probably had occult ties and were sent all over the world, a lot of them probably got picked up for Operation Paperclip.
4: So the ideas
3: yeah. and the theories they may have had may have had deeper roots, you know? A lot of the stuff the Germans had, like, they were really obsessed with the occult. They were obsessed with it from the Vril society to you know, to whatever Himmler was running, but they were obsessed with the occult. They were trying to find some kind of answers from the occult and transfer into the material world. Well,
1: yeah. So they actually even went over to Tibet and learn and uh, visited the uh, monks who were supposedly capable of doing sonic levitation.
0: Well, they, they back in the 1700s. I mean, this started the, the, the university system that we have now is, is profoundly influenced by, you know, the, the German like Heidelberg system and uh, clubs, you know, like we have, you know, like, uh, you know, Greek letter clubs and stuff. Um, you know, sororities and fraternities. These started, you know, in these German universities. And so our our uh, you know Skull and Bones, for instance, you know, um, in in Yale uh, was was a direct uh, crib from a German you know kind of club at the university level. And these uh, these young men were being influenced by by you know people that you know whose names crop up, you know, uh, Christian Rosenkreuz and stuff like that. You know, the the Illuminati people uh, back in the 1700s. Um, a lot of them were were influenced as well by a gentleman named Carl Ritter who was a geographer and he he was a lot of the aryan kind of you know movement uh talking points and stuff like that you know rationale came from Ritter and so Ritter who was a college professor he was influencing these young people and so they created these clubs from germany so you you had these these kind of esoteric you know, kind of clubs in Germany, and then they, you know, a lot of our elites were educated in Germany. So they would, you know, whether they were young British men or whether they were Americans, you know, William James, people like that, they would go and study in Germany. You know, the the British writer Somerset Maum, you know, um and 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 then the, Norbert Wiener, as an example, I mentioned him from cybernetics. You know, all these people would go to Germany, and then they would go back to their American universities, and they would bring back a lot of these ideas. So it was just it seemed like a natural thing, probably, for them to kind of steal those Project Paperclip people, and they were, you know, they. They were con- They were already primed, kind of. You know, a lot of these avenues of power were already connected. You know, uh, to Germany. So,
1: well, if you look at the people who were on the the Manhattan Project, I mean, look how many Operation Paperclip people were there. They they dominated the attendance and the you know the the they were uh, I would say at least two thirds German on the Manhattan Project.
0: It kind of tells you how how they. Considered our people uh, incompetent, you know that they 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 really weren't making advances until they stole the uh, intellectual bounty of uh, Central Europe, kind of like Russia. You know, uh, you know the United States and Russia rushed in to steal, you know, the, that that brain power, you know, from this uh, this incredible scientists. But yeah, Sid's right. You know, just in terms of not only did they do, you know, um, occult stuff, but also you know I- experimentation. You know, MK Ultra, you know, originally came from uh, the German mind control. You know, the K is for control, the German, you know, Germans use K instead of C, like Africa with a K, um, and so yeah, MK Ultra, the mind control program was was directly taken from you know previous German programs, you know, as well as you know kind of uh, splitting of the atom with Heisenberg and and all these just incredible, uh, you know projects and one of which was the the formation of the cia that they had actually recruited people who had uh, created the gestapo and they were very impressed by you know the secret police and so they they, they transformed the oss you know um into the cia that was
1: galen yeah galen and a special deal that he made to continue the german uh intact to continue the gestapo intact well and the- just uh report to the Americans after the war was over. Well, the, the,
0: Harry Truman said that. He said that he regretted. And once again, 1947, we're coming back to that year again, 1947. He authorizes the creation of the CIA. And he said a month after Kennedy was assassinated that he would never have authorized it had he known that it would have turned into an American Gestapo, you know, which is very foreseeable since you had people from the literal Gestapo creating
2: it.
1: There you go. <laughs> I could do it.
2: <laughs> Any thoughts, Dennis? Well, you know, and just in the connection that you were making before with the influence that um, Germany had over some elements of our academic culture, I don't think in that connection we can ignore the commercial aspect of those connections as well, leading up to World War II throughout the 1930s, especially between American financial interests, American business, and IG Farben. And of course, yeah. IG Farben was the gigantic conglomerate of chemical companies uh, in Germany, it was the world's largest corporation, I believe. It was certainly the world's largest chemistry company. Uh, and it uh, really enabled uh, financially the rise of the Nazi regime. Without without IG Farben, there probably would not have been a successful Nazi regime. Uh, but without Western, uh, you know, specifically U.S., financial backing and commercial ties between some of our large firms and IG Farben. There might not have been a successful IG Farben that could have allowed the rise of the Nazi regime. So all these things are very interestingly tied together back in the 19, you know, mid 1920s, 30s. 1930s. It's very interesting. It, it's, you inter- know, uh, okay.
1: it's John J. McCloy and Prescott Bush. They, yeah. I think you're referring to
2: yeah, yeah they're, 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 they're a couple, you know, the, the Rockefeller's
1: ties
2: yeah, and uh, Anthony Sutton did a great job. Uh, Wall Street and the rise of Hitler documenting all of this. The historian Anthony C. Sutton, who was with the Hoover Institution for a while at Stanford. Uh, his book does a great job really elucidating these ties.
0: Yeah, I love Sutton's work and and they're short too. They're like, you know, 200 pages or something. Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution, Wall Street and uh, Hitler, Hitler Wall Street and FDR, like everybody should should read those. They those should be taught in school. Um They really should. But but one of the things that that kind of jumps out at me just listening to you guys right now is Germany basically, if you read HG uh, Wells, he wrote a, a book in 1900 uh called Anticipations. And so he's predicting the world of the year 2000 from the vantage point of 1900. And he gets a ridiculous amount of things correct, um, shocking things that he gets correct. Like for instance, he says in the, in the year 2000, he said, people will probably not dress as formally. And you're going to see men and women dressing more or less the same. And you're going to see women in pants. And he said, you're going to probably see men in sports jerseys, because they're going to want to look virile. You know, so I bet he never
1: them. thought that we'd see women, men in skirts. <laughs> Yeah, exactly.
0: Exactly. And so and he also he also foresaw things like um, he said, we're going to advance technologically. So we're not going to have, you know, fireplaces. They'll probably be synthetic fireplaces, but they'll have a nostalgia. So they'll probably have some synthetic material looking like logs, you know, with like a gas oh, wow. fire. He predicted that he, he's the guy who coined the term atomic bomb. You know, uh, Leos Lazard, you know, credits him with uh, helping him have the brainstorm regarding uh, nuclear fission. So Wells was an incredibly brilliant man, but in in 1900, he writes about how England has to take down Germany. Um, so this is prior to Hitler, prior to Nazis, like 1900, and it was just based on economic reasons. And he was giving, you know, the, the the reasons for that. And he was like, okay, so England has this old slave based colonial system, right? And as an example, if you needed rubber in a circa, you know, 1880, uh, you would get it from rubber tree plants from Southeast Asia. You would get it from a colony, an overseas colony. So this was extremely cumbersome. You'd have to maintain these colonies. You'd ship the, the rubber tree plants over thousands of miles and, um, very expensive, and so the Germans innovated. Instead of using slaves and colonies, they used factories and capitalism and industrial production. And so they created synthetic rubber, which was of higher quality and you could get for like pennies. And so the world started buying the synthetic rubber. The English did not like this, and so H.G. Wells, as early as 1900, he says we have to cobble together a reason, a pretext to take down Germany. So I, I wanted to to just uh, change gears just for a second um, and get kind of take us back to mj12 um you know majestic 12 and what that represented as a uh, an inflection point you know a hinge upon which history turned you know where we were this society this open source society this prosperous society before world war ii then world war ii happens and we're now a permanent war state and you know what i think just getting back to majestic 12 um in relation to the secrecy, in relation to cover stories, in relation to, you know, your, your eyesight got improved because of carrots. Um, w- one of the things that, that, I, that I find interesting about the documents, um, just to return to that, was that um, I, I wonder if they were trying to flush out uh leaks you know within the organization so they they came up with very specific stories and so now we're used to kind of the internet where where there's 4chan where there's reddit where there's all these different places where they can disseminate say for instance you know covid videos of people falling over you know and and they can panic the public with these these just to use that term again videos of uncertain providence you know where all of a sudden you know everybody just believes it just because they saw it on facebook or something and um and so that's how they track
1: They're proliferating, you realize. There are thousands of them.
0: Well, it, well, that's what I mean. And and so they're they're using it to track virally how information spreads so that when they do a, a subsequent campaign, they know which nodes to hit. They know which which avenues of information to to disseminate these things on. And so I remember when I was a kid, pre-internet, and they it, it's amazing to me now, right? Um, where every kid seemed to know about Richard Gere and a gerbil, and I'll leave it there. Every kid seemed to know about, about Rod Stewart, Uh, and, and going, having his stomach pumped, and I'll leave it there. And how did that proliferate? And I think the, the fact that they were so colorful was a tag, kind of like when you tag a cow, right? You'll know that that cow, because it has a specific signature, right? So if you create something so outlandish that, you know, it's not likely that two different people at two different places would have, would have come up with it. So you create this really outlandish narrative, and then you watch how it spreads. And so in the nineties, they were talking about, oh, urban legends, and you heard that as a buzzword, urban legend, urban legend, and you don't hear that too much anymore. But th- this was basically the the kind of CIA looking at how this, the viral spread of information throughout a society, what we today call a meme, right? Like uh, Richard Dawkins coined the term in the 70s, a meme, a, a packet of information that spreads virally throughout a, a civilization. And so they were looking at the methodologies of that. And so I, I look at MJ-12, and I, I I wonder if that might be an early kind of, you know, stab at that. You know, where they were they created a very specific narrative, you know, and and it had the benefit of looking like it might be true and it still might, I don't know, because they did do Project Blue Book and they did do all these subsequent things like the Collins Elite and the CIA. Um it it but it probably isn't true, but it's so colorful that it would have that tag, it would have that signature. So if it leaked, they would know, hey, we we gave that story to Bill. And, you know, and if this story got out, we know Bill's the leaker, you know. And yeah. so that might be, you know, what what we were watching.
1: Uh, Can I enter something in from the uh, summary of all the various MJ-12 people that I sent you guys? Yeah, sure. Uh, it's about Sidney Sowers, who I had never heard of. But he was appointed as the first director of the Central Intelligence Agency in 1946 by Truman. And he would be in charge of the new Central Intelligence Group. And prior to this, he had been deputy director of naval intelligence, and he had been one of the architects of the system that that came into being with the president's directive. He had written the intelligence chapter of the Eberstadt report, which advocated a unified intelligence system. And toward the end of 45, When the competing plans for national intelligence system were deadlocked, Sowers' views had come to the attention of the president, and he seems to have played a role in breaking the impasse. He subsequently became executive secretary of the United States National Security Council. It was through Sowers that Truman first learned of the possible existence of the hydrogen bomb. Interesting. So this Sydney Sowers guy is one that's definitely worth investigating, and I notice uh, at least half of the MJ12 um, people, um, the leaders, have German surnames. Yeah, <laughs> that
0: is that is interesting. Um, I'm, I'm gonna, if I may, I'm gonna play um, a clip just really quickly um, from uh, Linda Moulton Howe. And so Linda Moulton Howe, uh, just to get back to the Majestic 12 documents, she um, was she got like a second batch of documents, a a, a playbook, you know, allegedly. There was the first documents in 1984 uh, that Moore and Shandera got. And then in 1994, there was this this uh, kind of alien, you know, playbook that she got. So I'm going to I'm going to play that clip.
4: And then when you start getting into what is in this book, You have the illustrations and sketches of four different categories of different craft, UFOs, and there is a paragraph in here that implies that we are dealing with collaboration, that there must be some agreement between the United States and the extraterrestrials. Really? There is, on this page 17, it's under chapter 5, and it goes into A, encounters initiated by the extraterrestrial biological entities. Possible contact may take place as a result of overtures by the entities themselves. In these instances, it is anticipated that encounters will take place at military installations or other obscure locations selected by mutual agreement.
0: Okay. Did you want to jump in on that?
1: <laughs> I do have something to say. That's direct experience. Shoot. You know, I had a, when I, I first went to work for DOE in 2004, and then um, there was a break of two years. And then I was back in 2000. Well, actually three years, 2007, but uh, in 2004, um, I got to know a guy who had worked at, uh, he had, He was a consultant to my group, which is the Emergency Operations Training Academy for DOE, but this guy was retired and he was acting as a consultant, and he had been retired from the Air Force. He, when he was a young man, he had worked at Holloman Air Force Base, and he had been a security guard who watched the landing of a craft that he said could not have been made by humans, and it was there to meet a large presidential airplane.
0: Yeah, you wonder, uh, you know, like I like I said, that's why I'm kind of agnostic. Like 90% of me believes that 99% of this is is disinformation and kind of war of the world stuff. But you do wonder because there there do seem to be very earnest people, you know, um who come forward and 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 not the the CIA types, you know, or or the the general types or anything like that, but just you know kind of like there was a gentleman at Roswell who claimed to be a, a an undertaker, and he said that he was asked for asked for child sized coffins, and so he gives his his account of it, you know, and, and and he doesn't really seem to have too much of a reason to lie, and and if you watch the guy, he doesn't seem to be. That imaginative a person, he's a very kind of you know man of of humble intellectual compass, and uh, but yeah he, he he in a very earnest way you know he he kind of talks about you know his experience, and so you do wonder you know on some level you know and but you know just to go back to Project Blue Book, um you know Jacques Vaillet, the the French you know guy the French scientist who was associated with Project Blue Book he he was the first one to come to the con- conclusion that these were not extraterrestrials that. The government was kind of dabbling in, you know, esoteric weirdness, like like Nick Redfern says, you know, and that he believes that they may have, you know, kind of contacted um, interdimensional intelligences. Uh, so who who knows? I mean, who knows what, what the but what's about. to
1: say interdimensional doesn't mean alien? I mean, uh, I I guess I have some confusion about that because inter- we're not used to dealing with anything interdimensional. You know, we pretty much, you know, rely on the three we know of. <laughs> so I don't know why people assume that it's demonic just because it might be interdimensional.
3: Well, what I've been noticing is a trend lately through like the past maybe like 50 years, like past 50 years of research or more, that slowly everyone's, everything's been jerking to a more materialistic point of view. But before, you have to realize that people thought in ways of that… Yes, we have three dimensions here, but there's something more. There's spirit. There's something else that you have to tap into in order to get ideas or resonate with a certain frequency so that you can tap into something more. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, so, that would be like Steiner had written and Blavatsky had written about a lot of that stuff.
3: Exactly. And so I think it's been pr- on purpose for the reason that maybe they're trying to like prepare us so that we get to like the seed or something else, but they're trying to Lock us off
0: from that way of thinking. Yeah, I I just did a video about that, you know, um, that's probably downloading now. Um, But yeah, it's, it's about, you know, God and the Constitution and how we used to have a very spiritual basis. We had this metaphysics that, you know, kind of opened the way for individual liberty, individual rights, you know, rights that are given to you by a creator and not by a government. And so there was a, a philosopher named Auguste Comte in, in the 1850s, and he was kind of the, the represents the, the splitting point, the juncture, you know, between the old worldview of God and metaphysics in the church and then the new worldview after the Industrial Revolution of materialism. And Comte straight up says, I don't believe in individual rights. There are no rights, they're just responsibilities. And he says, he even calls individual rights immoral. And I quote him in, in the video, you know, so this is the new worldview and you're seeing this play out now with, with the whole, you know, kind of healthcare crisis, let's call it, um, where they, they, they straight up say, Oh, if you're invoking individual rights, you're a sociopath, only the collective matters, only the leaders matter. You don't matter. And if you try to assert, Oh, well, I have my rights from my creator. They laugh at you.
3: Yeah. Okay. Well, um, I add mm-hmm. something on that. Yeah. Um, just, I'll let you go ahead. Yeah. Thank you. Well, what they're trying to do, they're trying to replace the idea of God with government. They're trying to usurp that place in people's minds and spirits so that ultimately it'll break them without them realizing it. Because if you know that there is a higher power, because whether you whether you believe in it or not, you feel it sometimes, whether it's your ghost or paranormal or whatever, but sometimes things add up too good or too specifically. But what I'm trying to say is they're going to do that so that they can take control of people, so that they can take away their freedoms and then make them more like serfs. Dennis Anyways, go ahead. Go ahead, I was
2: I was going to, you know, really kind of attack that same point kind of in the same same way. So I agree with everything Sid just said, but you know, where the where the rubber really meets the road is where we're at today with regard to these exact things. And you have mm-hmm. the, you know, to put it to put it mildly, the materialist side of things, uh, denying that there is uh, uh, any value or relevance to religion and religious thought. And yet our very government is founded on religious thought in that, you um, know, if you look at what Thomas Jefferson wrote in our Declaration of Independence, uh, that our creator endows us with our, our rights and they cannot be taken away by government. If we deny that now and say, well, that's just uh, mythology and not true, uh, we can go ahead and uh, impose on your rights anytime we wish and individualism doesn't matter. Uh, you know, that's just ipso facto. We're losing our freedom. It's gone. We're playing with, uh, you know, to put it mildly, we're playing with fire here. We're letting people play with fire. And it threatens the, the livelihood, the future, you know, the ethical foundation of everything that we know as a civilization to this point.
0: Chapter three. Conclusion. My conclusion would be just touching on, on what you guys were talking about, I'm going to use that as a springboard and say that the notion of aliens as beings from another planet, to me, is not as persuasive as the inter- interdimensional hypothesis that Jacques Vallée put, put out. Um, Insofar as what you see it, it as is a function of our materialism, right? Where it's like our, our, our ancestors would have seen these things as elves or fairies or, or demons, you know, depending on their their point of view, jinn, if, if they're Arab. Um, whereas now, you know, we've tended to see, you know, if these things are real at all, um, we tend to see them as little men in little space planes, because we're men in in airplanes. So we we just project our kind of medical materialistic paradigm on this phenomena. And it might not actually be phenomena, you know, that that could be reducible to, you know, three dimensions, you know, as Sid alluded to, you know, it might be something that is very old, just like Dr. John Dee was experimenting with, just as Rudolf Steiner was discussing when, when they were talking, you know, Rudolf Steiner, by the way, is a good, you know, nexus, because he was an Austria, he was an Austrian mystic. And so a lot of the German esotericism was, you know, informed by Rudolf Steiner, informed by the Theosophical Society, informed by all these, you know, the, the age of aramon you know, the Aryan religion and all, all this kind of stuff that's still with us today, you know, it's masked, you know, they, they, they kind of dress it in materialistic terminology, but we're dealing with, you know, something that our ancestors would not have interpreted as materialistic. So I'll, I'll I'll leave I'll leave your conclusion. Uh, we'll we'll start with uh, Ginny. What's your
1: conclusion on uh, MJ12? I mean I know these people existed, and I I can see by the interlocking nature of their backgrounds that they were tied in with the CIA and the the and Operation Paperclip. And if you look at that nexus, then you're seeing a perfectly good reason to hide, um, especially after the War of the Worlds episode where people did believe it and they really did panic and some people committed suicide Um, they had and also because of the uh oh what was the name the brookings institute report after the war of the worlds episode brookings report concluded that if people had to face an alien invasion that they would panic and you know they commit suicide and the last thing they wanted was a public in panic and so therefore they had to hide everything that might possibly be real about aliens, whatever manifestation you want to talk about, that people don't have the mental equipment to be able to handle that kind of exposure. Yeah. Or, so, or therefore, quantify I think it existed.
0: It. So Sid, what would be your, your conclusion? My conclusion is that it's
3: probably a false rabbit hole meant to like mislead people. I mean, don't get me wrong. All these powerful people coming together. That's, that's normal. But a lot of stuff was probably exaggerated to quite a degree. but I'd probably pay attention to what they're trying to do now with taking control of everyone. they're like getting rid of spirit from uh, how do I put this Getting rid of spirit from humanity, you know taking away from like taking away from our our roots, our spiritual our spiritual roots.
1: yeah, they trying... have to destabilize it.
3: Exactly. They're trying to stabilize us so that they can further control us. That's the main point they're trying to do is, and the degrees to which you're going to it is, is insane,
0: but I'm almost up there. Uh, Dennis, what, what is your conclusion on the uh, Majestic 12 documents?
2: Sure. Well, I'm going to go back to something that the new American has reported or at least discussed, uh, you know, going back over many years and many different issues, uh, of the magazine. And that is, uh, The same concept that sid had mentioned as a rabbit hole but the new american has tended to use and the writers for new american has tended to use the terminology of a tangent and that i think mj 12 the majestic 12 documents are one of innumerable uh attempts to use different disinformation to create tangents to lead people Uh, down the rabbit holes and away from the important uh, areas that they might otherwise be concerned about and uh, to keep them tied up with uh, things that they can't do anything about and that are really irrelevant in the bigger scheme of things. Uh, Meanwhile, uh, they can continue to do all the activities that they want to do, whether it be uh, conduct secret research or conduct Uh, you know, wide-scale social engineering programs or move us to, uh, you know, nowadays to the Great Reset where uh, we won't own anything and we'll be happy. Meanwhile, we can keep everyone busy with these tangents. And I think think Majestic 12 is a tangent.
0: Well, that'll have to remain our last word. I'd like to thank the audience for tuning in and thank the panel, Jenny Silcox, Dennis Barrett, and the mysterious Sid. As for me, Daniel Natal, I'll be signing off and catch you here next time on Under the Iceberg.